the question of asteroid mining or asteroid exploration. All right, mm -hmm. now we're going to go walk, we're going to send a mission to one of these. How do we safely interact with it? It's got very, very low gravity, you know, a millionth of what we have here on Earth, right? So escape velocities, you know, I'm a terrible baseball player and I can throw a baseball that fast, right? <laughs> um, the, we're no, talking escape, a couple miles per hour? No, it's like, it's like inches per second. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, you know, anybody, you know, can be a star baseball player if you're living on an asteroid. Our future in space. Hello and welcome to Our Future in Space. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt, and I am joined as always by my co-host, uh, Eric Ward, who's the Vice President for Engineering Design um, with me. How's it going, Eric? Oh, it's going really great. Uh, I'm excited for this uh, this podcast episode. Uh, we've got our guest today is Professor Karen Daniels. Professor Daniels received her PhD in 2002 from Cornell University and joined the faculty of North Carolina State University in 2005. And she's also a fellow of the American Physical Society and American Association for the Advancement of Science. Her main research interests center around experiments on the non-equilibrium and non-linear dynamics of granular materials, fluids, and gels. Several of these studies have been idealized, have used idealized systems to provide insight into biological, geological, and solar system phenomena, including rubble pile asteroids. Professor Daniels, welcome to our future in space. Thanks so much for having me here today. <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the focus of your space research? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, like so many of this, and almost certainly, you know, your listeners. You know, I was always a kid who was interested in space. I grew up going to the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, as many people do, and you know, uh, would stay up past my bedtime to watch Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Um, and I think, in many ways, thought I might study astronomy. Um, and that's not how it turned out. Um, I played around a bit with astronomy and planetary science um, as a undergraduate. Um, but in the end, it really grabbed me to become a laboratory scientist, and I drifted away from space for, for quite a long time. Um, and then I found my way back eventually. It's kind of an interesting story how I did that. But you know, my, my space research now has its grounding in my regular day-to-day -day life as an experimental laboratory scientist, right? So um, and I guess I like to do experiments in the laboratory to understand um, most of the time it's how soft materials are stable, right? So when they're stable or not stable under various circumstances. Um, so an example of this might be you know, if I go to the beach here in North Carolina on a better day to then today, um, and I wanna make a sandcastle, right? I can pour sand from a bucket and it's gonna feel like a liquid. I can pour it, right? It takes the shape of the bucket. Mm -hmm. um, and so it feels a lot like a liquid. And yet when it lands on the, the sand underneath it, I can walk on it. It behaves enough like a solid. It slips around a bit, right? But the friction of the grains and the fact that there's grains underneath the other grains holding them up means that it, I can walk on it. It's sufficiently solid to hold me up, right? It's sufficiently solid, you know, to survive some but not all hurricanes, right? Um, and if I want to make a really nice sandcastle, right, I could add some water to the grains, then I can make a, build, a nice pile that has some structure and is really intricate, right? And so the transitions that a material makes that goes from like either being stable or unstable, flowing or solid, that's sort of what I do in my lab. Um, 
And at some point, it's really fascinating. But at some point, that got me back around to space. <laughs> you know, by hook or by crook, I ended up being back what I loved as a kid. Although, you know, life's not linear, and you, you know, it's not always by plan. But you realize you finally found a way back into something you had lost. <laughs> right. Well, maybe you can tell. So, so I guess I have two questions. So, one is. Why did you get attracted to granular materials? Did you spend just a lot of time at the beach? <laughs> or, or... I kind of hate the beach. Sand sticks to you. It's not yeah. <laughs> like the annoying properties of sand are quite annoying. <laughs> right? um, actually, more of a mountainous person. Um, but what uh -huh. I let me, yeah, so what got me back into granular materials was, was sort of a bit happenstance, right? That as a, after finishing my PhD, I was looking for a next cool project. Um, and one came up, and I ended up falling far more in love with the topic than I thought I was going to. And what I ended up loving about it was it tied a bunch of interests together. So one, I'm interested in, again, how materials go unstable. And sand is just like a wonderful example of how rich that phenomenon can be with just really simple ingredients. Um, and the second was I increasingly wanted my physics to be something that matters to the world, right? That it's not, it's a, I love doing the sort of more theoretical aspects, right? And that floats my boat, but, you know, humanity needs a little more than that sometimes. And so the connections to civil engineering um, and to how structures on our earth stay up and, you know, how we, you know, transport materials, like the fact how our solar system formed, right? The fact that grains appear in all of these processes from like pharmaceuticals to, you know, mysteries of the universe, this made it a really attractive subject for me once I found out that sort of there was this field of people studying it, right? And then astronomy wow. specifically, yeah. <laughs> was a cool, so I believe you had Martin Elliott on your show. Not that long yes, ago. an early guest. Yeah. And so about a decade ago, he and I met at a physics event, um, and he was there for the astronomy side, and I was there for the soft matter side, and he told me about rubble-pile asteroids. Um, I was like, what? <laughs> What's a rubble-pile asteroid? You know, he's like, well, mm -hmm. pile of rocks that are held together in space, and there we go. This is Venu. Right, and mm -hmm. this is a self-gravitating object. They aren't stuck together by like, you know, glue or by being solid rock. It's just a giant sand pile in space. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, this just caused me to ask him and myself and anybody I could find a ton of questions. Right, so how did this thing come to exist? Right, <laughs> um, how is, is gravity really enough to hold them together? Right, in, when the solar system was forming, like how did these little are they droplets that coalesced? You know, like how do I think about this in terms of the soft matter physics that I usually think about? And then like hmm. um, the question of asteroid mining or asteroid exploration. All right, hmm. now we're going to go walk. We're going to send a mission to one of these. How do we safely interact with it? Right? How do we if we're going to? It's got very very low gravity. You know, a millionth of what we have here on Earth, right? So escape velocities, you know, I'm a terrible baseball player and I can throw a baseball that fast, right? <laughs> um, the, we're no, talking escape, a couple miles per hour? No, it's like it's like inches per second. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, you know, anybody, you know, can be a star baseball player if you're living on an asteroid, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'm imagining the little prince on his asteroid, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, a book that I loved as a child. Um, yeah. And it's like... He can't stand on that. He's going to fall in, no. right? <laughs> so, like, how are these oh, things yeah. possible to interact with in a way that's going to 
Mm -hmm. Let us ask questions and learn things, right? And then, of course, we all know, like, the doomsday scenario is we know an asteroid's going to hit the Earth, and we need to send Bruce Willis, you know, or somebody, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so, like, if we did need to break one of these up, you know, and now, of course, we have done an experiment, you know, asked, you know NASA's done that ex um, experiment on, um, now, right? So, when you yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to, to dive in to, to see what the answers to some of these questions are. <laughs> And or or at least what we know about them more. Um, so so yeah, maybe tell us a little bit like you know how how do you think about this, these granular physics in reduced gravity? We have these very small amounts of gravity. Um, how do we expect matter to behave differently from normal you know Earth Earth gravity behaviors? And and then maybe we can kind of dive into some of those particular questions. Yeah. So the so imagine, okay, so imagine you're flying up, you know, to, to Bennu, uh, and you want to say what's going to be different. Well, the first thing you'd notice is that, you know, there's almost no, you know, we all sort of live under one G of gravity. We're used to all of that pressing on us, and it's you know, it's pressing our. If we imagine our sandcastle again, it's it's pressing all of this, the grains of the sandcastle back down, you know, into each other. So that compression from gravity is actually making things be more stable, right? <laughs> And so we're going to expect that the surface of these are not that stable, right? Um, and that if you uh, walk up to them, right, anything that you touch is going to be very easy to disturb. And thank you for showing the picture of this is the OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu, which is a rubble pile asteroid. And this um, arm, which was going in for sa sample collection, and you should think of that as large gravel, right, that it's encountering, um, the arm went a meter in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's not how we interact with soil, at least, you know, <laughs> not around my neck of the woods, right? You know, mm -hmm. this is something that's very different than we're experienced in working with. And so, you know, some of the experiments that we've done in my own lab have been to look at how force transmission happens, right, when you change different levels of gravity, right? And we've seen that when you have less gravity, right, so things are being more compressed, less squished together, right, this, the, um, the material behaves a lot more like a fluid, right? So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that an arm was able to slide um, right into it, because that's what we expect of fluids, but not of solids. Right, so right. this is a place where the sand, it's called regolith, you know, when it's on the surface of a planetary mm -hmm. body. And, and I'm sorry to jump in, Karen. I just wanted to ask a quick question about cohesive forces. So mm -hmm. besides the gravitational force that's kind of keeping everything compressed, there are these electrostatic forces and maybe chemical forces as well. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, please. There are some forces holding it together. And actually, the work of Paul Sanchez at um, UC Boulder um, you can actually use spinning asteroids <laughs> as a way to, de to detect cohesive forces. Because if it, sp mm -hmm. it spins fast at a certain rate, then the asteroid starts to you yeah. know, pitch off like a liquid would, right? <laughs> right? Um, and so the loss of, so there's enough cohesion that helps and it stabilizes spinning asteroids, okay? Um, and so that's definitely an important effect. And I think increasingly, people who think about cohesion and these very sort of Again, what I call soft matter physics, those are highly applicable to understanding these behaviors on planetary bodies. But just it's, it's something that we don't know a ton about. You know, when is it more important to consider electrostatics versus van der Waals um, cohesion, right? You know, knowing the regimes in which you should care about any of these, right? Is it for dust-sized particles or for larger gravel? Like dust is, cares more about electrostatics, right? You know, and, and so this and is I'm a, sorry a to huge again, open area but... of research here for people you know, 
who are interested in materials properties. For the non-scientist, what is a van der Waals force? Uh, van der Waals force. I like to remember that a van der Waals force is what lets geckos stick to walls. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it's okay. the intermolecular forces. So when you have molecules from material A and molecules of material B, there actually can be small attractive forces um, between those. You need a very large surface area in order to, to make that um, work out to be of much use. And, and so we don't notice it much in our day-to-day -day lives because we're so heavy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but small things, you know, those, those intermolecular forces can be an important effect. But like if my hand is a little bit moist and, mm -hmm. and I put it on a, you know, I, I'm going to do yeah. it right now with a piece of paper and it, and my, it sticks yeah, and it sticks. So yeah. is that Van der Waals? So those are actually capillary forces more likely. So no. if you think about, let's go back to the sandcastle example, right? If I were just, when I build a sandcastle, why do wet grains of sand stick together well? It's because there's little liquid bridges between the grains, right? And you, you can think of these like the droplets of water on your car windshield, right? Mm. Yeah, and so those liquid and those liquids and, and what lets capillary rise happen like in straws and things like that. So these are fluid dynamics. This is from the surface tension of liquids. Okay. Um, and those can actually create a large enough force to yeah. help things stick together, just like the sandcastle. Mm. Yep. Okay, but just to clarify, so the Van der Waals forces are even weaker than... They're even weaker, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so classifying, this is a scientific enterprise, is saying which forces are larger or smaller, depending on the kind of material and the size of the object, you know, whether or not there's electrostatic charging, you know, present or absent, right? All of those things. Mm -hmm. And this is where the laboratory okay. scientist is really interesting to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but but I guess the unique environment of of an asteroid is that you've essentially turned off gravity just about. I mean, right, just about turned off gravity, which means only all the weird things matter, <laughs> right? So gravity is a millionth on like an asteroid, like we just saw. Gravity is like a millionth of the size that we have here on Earth. So all these things, you know, that usually aren't things we consider when we're doing again like civil engineering type projects suddenly are important. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I can I can see why this is so interesting for a scientist who's just sort of wanting to understand things outside our normal scope, and this is a great opportunity to do it. But of course, you can't send a, that many uh, instruments nope. to an asteroid. So so what do you do most of the time in the laboratory or else? Yeah. <laughs> so in the laboratory, I've got a few tricks. Um, mm -hmm. So in the laboratory, we tend to run things on flat surfaces. Right? Because then you can make it so there's no gravity because everything's floating on an air hockey table. Mm. Uh. <laughs> so we can turn it off as long as we're willing to work in a, a flat world instead of a 3D world. Right? Um, mm -hmm. And then sort of the next level of things we can do is we can tilt that and get a little bit of gravity downhill. Right? Mm -hmm. And we do experiments like that in my lab. Mm -hmm. um, and next nicest thing um, is because you know, we sort of want to go from microgravity, which is asteroid gravity, so it's a millionth of the gravity on Earth, to milligravity, which is like a thousandth on Earth, right? And so we can do that by tilting the table, right? We can, we can make that happen, right? And we can get up to about lunar gravity that way. Um, oh, okay. And, but of course, we have to compromise and do everything in flatland, right? And so if you want to get more than that, 
right? You need to actually start asking technology for help to get you off the surface of the earth, right? Um, and that's a lot more challenging. But I, mean, I think it's incredibly important to, to change things as a function of gravity level, right? Because, okay, so as a physicist, I like a knob that I can turn. Like mm -hmm. if I turn the temperature up and down on water, I can go, oh, look, ice, water, yeah. gas, water, ice, right? By turning the knob, temperature up and down, right? In space, we're seeing that changing the gravity makes it more fluid-like, more solid-like, right? But I want a controlled experiment, you know, where I can do that, right? And from an engineering perspective, like the history of engineering, right, civil engineering, for all the structures that we've built on Earth, right, all over the world in all of the different cultures, going back millennia, huge amount of expertise building things out of, you know, soil, Earth's regolith, right? Right. 100% of it was designed to work in 1G. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every culture of the world has built Adobe, you know, has built all these amazing structures, right, that are very stable, you know, last for very long times, okay, but they work on Earth. Okay, now we yeah. talk about digger, digging, digging holes, anchoring. You know, how does a shovel work, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you can't stand on the ground, how do you use a shovel? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So, all yeah. of, so adapting to different levels of gravity is both a physics question, understanding it as a knob, and a really practical engineering one of like, we have no experience with this. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And so you were saying you need to lean on technology to help you. And so, uh, you know, I know of at least one facility that's planned to be built in Earth orbit that might help with that. Yes, I do. <laughs> you can spin at different rates too, so you can dial. Yeah, that exactly. Up and, and you know, you know, from my standpoint, right? I mean, we do, and you know, so I have been on parabolic flights, you know, which give us, mm -hmm. you know, a few seconds. <laughs> you know, we have twenty seconds to do our experiments. Um, you know, there's yeah, you can go up from that. People do sounding rockets. People do drop towers. But like. You're not even really, you know, sounding rockets get you to, you know, minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, experimentalists like to conduct experiments, you know, A, where we can control things, like a knob, mm -hmm. right? And B, where we have enough time to do good experiments, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so places like, you know, Pioneer Station, the fact that, A, you can tune the gravity by, you know, how fast it's rotating, mm -hmm. and B, that I've got more than 20 seconds to do an experiment, <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's Try 20 it's, days. <laughs> you know, and you know, it's no joke. Like, you know, we do successful science in 20 seconds when we have to, but it's not the preferred way to do experiments. <laughs> um, and so for me, that's really attractive, right? That there we, you can do a lot better job of being a good scientist when you have more time to collect data, right? When you have control over the environment, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. All of these things right. improve the quality of the science done. Right, so you actually trust the result, right? You can ask better yeah. questions and get better answers, right? Then we can get on Earth. We just can't get these on the surface, right? So, um, and so that's, and to me, that's a really attractive possibility, right? Yeah. And and it sounds like you're really interested in the whole regime from zero to one, or are yeah. you actually, it, are you more interested in a particular gravity regime that may or may not be easy to access on a rotating platform? So for me, actually, I mean, like I said, I like the knob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the knob is most attractive to me, right, as a physicist. As someone who's interested right. in how understanding planetary things, right, knowing that I could ask something that is asteroid-like and that is moon-like, 
right? Those are two really nice examples where we would actually have use for that knowledge, right? Because we are planning missions, um, you know, to, to asteroids, to, to Mars, to the moon. And so those specific values are of higher interest, you know, because of their technological applications. Right. In other words, it's not just that it's places we're going to go, but it's likely to be centers for commercial activity, and therefore yeah. we really need to figure this out from an engineering perspective, the best way to, to do what we need to do. Right. right. Um, yeah, and I also think that, you know, we also, I don't, you know, the other, the other new aspect of this, right, is, you know, talking about the universe. The universe is both our home, right, and a place we'd like to understand, <laughs> right, and a place where we draw our resources from to live, right? I mean, it is simultaneously both of those things. Um, and so there's actually scientists, you know, who, who study the solar system, right, and, you know, who ask questions, for instance, like if we look at features on Mars, Right. We look at geologic features, features. We have tons of data coming back from the rovers. There's pictures. There's, you know, Mars <laughs> Global Explorer. Right. We have lots and lots of pictures. There's Rosetta. Right. And we have pictures from space or from the surface that, that have geologic features. So how do we know if those features were formed, you know, recently or a long time ago? How do we know if they were formed? with water or without water, right? And so geomorphology is the sort of the study of how geological landforms form over time and through geologic processes, right? And so planetary scientists, in order to understand planets, need to know something about behaviors of materials at lower gravity in order to get those explanations correct, right? And so that's, right. that's a basic science question, right, more than an engineering question. I see. In other words, just to get, just to really dial up the science, because you have models, but uh, that, that clearly work in fractional gravity, but you still need to validate it against. You need to validate them. Yeah. So, like, we don't. Yeah, I can't. If someone were to come to me and say, "How can I adapt, you know, my model to work on Mars?" I'm like, mm. you know, <laughs> you know, I'm getting into speculation territory, right? Mm. Yeah, and so this is where having, you know, so the specific, you know, the places that we're likely to visit are of special interest. Yeah, yeah I'm intrigued by, I, I mean, the difference between the moon and Mars is roughly a factor of, oh, I don't know, two, two and a half, two, yeah. right, in terms of the gravity mm -hmm. level. And it's still, you know, much lower than Earth, but wow, the gap between lunar and one millionth is on really large. Venue, yeah. It feels like there's still so much space. Yeah. In there's so much. There's a lot. There's a lot in there, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, from things that we've been playing, you know, from people research that I've seen people do simulated in computers and things we've played with in the lab, you know, it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the transitions. You know, I suspect that some of the transitions in solid-like to liquid-like behavior are showing up somewhere between asteroid and moon. <laughs> Uh -huh. Right, um, and so even though those are the places we're going to visit, the places in between are still the, the you know the gravity levels in between are still of scientific interest. So are you kind of milligravity, I think. Yeah, so I'm interested in you know, milligravity through tenth of a gravity, right? I think, and you know, sort of going up in steps of ten is sort of a nice way to think about it, right? Sure. Um, because it's so sensitive, you know, you know, even at that level, like I mean, the, the, I mean, a millionth. A thousandth seem like they're both zero to us, right? Or certainly and for a human, yeah. For yeah, a human, but, but in terms of the grains and their interactions, they're not the same. Right? Mm -hmm. and so having those sort of steps of ten control, I think, would be really would be really lovely yeah. to have. No, and you know, there's been no experiments done on that. Like it's a big open right. spot. It's a big open spot because zero gravity on you know the International Space Station, right? That's just one value. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I can tell you from parabolic flights that we were sort of in the, you know, let's just say we could feel the air turbulence. We can see the air turbulence in our data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's called G-jitter, right? And like, uh -huh. you know, things are, and so we, we see gravity oscillating in our data. Huh. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, right. so it's like, so, well, this is not so clean, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you'd like, like a wonky, like a wonky thermostat. It's like a wonky thermostat that can actually right, right, right. And like, who would want to do experiments on material properties as a function of temperature with a wonky thermostat? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like that. that. You know, when you're doing parabolic flights, that G jitter feels like that. You know, to me as an experimentalist, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's not clean data, right? We can still interpret it, right? But it's but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Well, before I ask my next question uh, about gravity levels and so on, Eric, did you have one you wanted to interject? or? Uh... Well, I, I just, uh, we talked earlier about, you know, some of the implications of asteroid, you know, of these granular physics. Um, I'm just curious, you know, we, you mentioned we don't, there are a lot of things we don't know, right? Like how would a shovel work on an asteroid if you can't stand there? But, you know, do we have any insights so far on things like asteroid mining or planetary protection and how these granular physics might affect those, those activities? Yeah, so people are we're starting to get where we have insight. I think the way I like to think about it is, you know, people like me who are doing sort of the basic physics stuff, right? So like my aim is often to just say like, if I change this variable, how does it control that outcome, mm -hmm. right? And as we start to build up more studies of that, and these can come from experiments, these can come from computer simulations, and we start to sort of map out sort of the range of behaviors, right? And what controls what? Does this improve things or make things worse, right? Just make it stronger or weaker, faster or slower, right? Then. Once you sort of have those sort of fundamentals under control, this is what allows that base of understanding is where design becomes possible, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to explore asteroids, right, whether it's for mining or for scientific purposes, right, the questions are kind of the same. It's like, how can we design a probe that's going to safely anchor, right? How do we decide in the shovel analogy, right? How do we decide how to dig, right? Do we want to dig slow so that nothing gets disturbed? Do we want to dig faster so it's a more efficient process? You know, if we want to collect a sample, you know, is it best to leave everything on the surface or to let it rise up so it's easier to collect, right? So these are all now design decisions. And unless you have a good fundamentals, you can't, you don't have a space in which to do design, right? Um, and then, so I think these are the sorts of things where I can't say specifically now, this is a better digger than that's a better digger. Right. You know, we have seen from our, some of our experiments that using flexible diggers that doesn't disturb the grains prevents them from all ejecting. Right. And that could be a really nice feature to have, or it could be a bad feature to have, depending on what you're designing. Right. And so then the human has to get involved. Right. <laughs> right. You know, making decisions about, you know, about ethics, about economics, about oh. efficacy, about efficiency. Right. Yeah. All of these words are things that you can't do unless you understand. You know, right, you kind of need to know what the space, yeah. yeah, how things are going to behave, what's possible, what isn't possible, and once you have a good handle on that, then you can start making these ethical and other, you know, social decisions about right. what should we do, right? But I can say I'd like to go stand on an asteroid and dig, and that'd be great, but I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So the little prince is a myth. The little prince is not. Sorry, you know, oh. he's got some problems. <laughs> I love that story. Well, they'll have to rewrite it. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, my question, my question for you was, I'm just curious, you know, I, I, my cursory understanding of solar system bodies is that there are a lot of very small, you know, gravity uh, asteroid, you know, asteroids the size of Bennu, roughly, with a they million. They seem to be really common. <laughs> yeah, and there's more and more of them as you get down in the size regime. But then it feels like there's a gulf, and then we have like the moons, the smaller moons yeah. of the outer planets that are maybe a tenth of a g, sometimes a a twentieth. But is there a class of objects at that millig level um, that are interesting, or they're not really like the biggest asteroid? What is its gravitational pull like? Well, you know, and the, but the small moons. Yeah, that's a good question. Is mm -hmm. there a gap there? That's that. You yeah. know, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. But I, I will say that's an interesting question of like what sets the size distribution of bodies in the solar system. Right? We started from a proto protoplanetary mm -hmm. disk, and we coalesced into you know a few Jupiter Saturns, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. A bunch of Earthish things, right? Yep. But mostly smaller stuff, right? And then, right. like you said, the smaller you go, the more of them there are. And so I think that some of the studies we make of how matter interacts in low-gravity environments can inform the models that would answer the question you just asked of why do we have this strange distribution of sizes? I and see. then where do they right. end up? Right. So the hypothesis is, if it's true that there are very few objects at that middle gravity level of a millige or so, then the question is why? Why does Maybe that happen? Right. Table. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and you know, the, you know, for instance, the asteroid belt, right, is a place where there's a huge population of really small stuff in a concentrated place. Right. 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 You know, the rings of Saturn, <laughs> right? Really small stuff in a very thin, yeah. very right. And so all of those structures that show up throughout the solar system formed through processes in low gravity, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, and so it's really, I think, this is the kind of thing where it doesn't directly, it doesn't impact us economically to know this answer, right? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> who hasn't, you know, who as a kid didn't ask why there are nine planets, right? What sets the nine? Oh, wait, Pluto's not one, right? right? <laughs> because it looks like maybe we should draw the line here and not here because of this strange size distribution, right? Yeah. Right. And so it's an arbitrary distinction. Of how we talk about our solar system. Yeah, no, I can see. And plus, we're also starting to ask questions about extrasolar planets mm -hmm. and their other objects. And, and now, do they have similar size distributions of, you know, a few large, lots of small, as we do, you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we need that fundamental physics. Well, why don't we uh, jump over to our T-shirt giveaway really quick, and then Good we idea. can hop back into this. Okay, Karen, we'll yep. put you in the waiting room for a moment. Yep. Back in the back. Back shortly. Okay, so um, yeah, it's been a couple of weeks since we've done this. Let's uh, let's roll the proverbial dice, and we'll pick a winner from our subscriber list. All right. So after the sound effect, I haven't been practicing. Wow. <laughs> 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 it's pretending this sort of ethereal dice that is bouncing around. Uh, okay, so it has landed on a, a winner. Uh, today's winner is, I don't know if there's a real name or not, uh, the name is Spatium Renascentia. Spatium Renascentia, congratulations. Uh, you are this week's t-shirt or other prize uh, giveaway winner. How does this person uh, claim their prize? 
Yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Just shoot us an email, ourfutureinspace at orbitalassembly.com uh, with your mailing coordinates, and we will send you something from the grab bag. And to everyone else who's listening, just make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get on the list for next week's drawing. All right, thanks everyone for, uh, for becoming a subscriber. We appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, welcome back, Karen. Hello. Oh. So you've talked a little bit uh, uh, earlier to us about your concerns with, you know, making a mess in space, you know, e.g. space pollution. Um, can you elaborate on that, you know, talk to our listeners about why this is, this is bad and why we should avoid doing it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the history of humans exploring places that are new to them and making a mess is, you know, mm -hmm. very long history. <laughs> um, you know, and actually, as a family, my family growing up and continuing to this, you know, days, you know, one of things I love to do is go hiking and backpacking and explore wilderness areas, right? And I've done this since I was a small child, right? And so leave no trace, you know, sort of always been a part of the ethos I was brought up in, right? Um, you know, leave a place cleaner than you found it, you know, in the backcountry. Um, and of course, no trace is really difficult, right? And, um, and space exploration is just so hard and so dangerous, right? And every mess we have ever made is still up there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and space junk is accumulating year by year, <laughs> right? Um, and so what it means is that future scientists, right, if generations go back to these same places we've already visited, they're going to be seeing our mess, right? And we only get we only get a clean place once, right? And then we seem to just leave a mess behind. Um, and you know, this sort of disturbs me, you know, from a like, why are we going out trash in the universe, right? Is our... <laughs> and you know, of course, once trash and pollution is out there, it's a, much, it's a lot harder to pick up than it was to put there. It's easy to let the, you know trash fly out yeah. the window. Cleaning up's a lot harder, right? And I'm guessing it's not just hard. I mean, it's hard on Earth. It must be it's even hard on harder Earth. in space. It's even harder right? in space. Because I mean, think about how dangerous and expensive it is for us to even go to any of these places. You know, first Earth orbit's hard. You know, going further is even harder. So if we're going to go there, right, are we going to go there on a trash collecting mission? You know, I've got questions about, you know, <laughs> people's willingness to do that. So, like, my preference would be us not to make a mess in the first place, right, so that, because no one's going to go back to clean up the mess in all likelihood, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so but, you're saying kind of best practices yeah. before we start going out in large numbers and then I guess my natural follow-on would be, if that's true, what, what would a best practice look like for you? Yeah, so, I mean, leave, and of course, we can't do no trace, right? I mean, you land a rocket, you know, a land a, you don't land a rocket, you, you know, you, you land a lander on, a, you know, a planet, and you've already, you know, probably caused, a, you know, you know, cleared mm -hmm. out, you know, some area from that, but then blasting off is even worse, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. That you're going to bring up an image of possibly what the future Service yeah. of Mars might look like a lot of right. rockets. And on. so, you know, um, someone I know at NASA, um, Phil Mesker's thought a lot about this issue of like, what is the scour that comes from one of these? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're not going to do no mess. No mess is not possible. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But but in terms of like leaving behind marks and having been there, but not leaving trash that's dangerous, I think is an achievable goal. Right. Um, and of course, it's the same as pollution on Earth. Once you let toxic chemicals out, you know, into the environment, it's very difficult to recollect them. Diffusion, entropy, et cetera, you know, takes mm -hmm. over. And so designing practices where we don't leave debris behind, right, that, you know, and, it, it, and it, I'm sure it's a challenge for you guys. We're, you're going to be, you know, sending up something into orbit where there's space debris floating around and is dangerous 
you know, to the enterprise. Sure. And so it's a dangerous business when we don't clean up. And I think, I think, you know, human history says this over and over and over again, that when we don't pay attention to the mess we make, it comes back to bite us. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean, I it's, yes, it's an aesthetic, but I also think it's practical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say in or in orbit and not just earth orbit, but really any orbit around any gravitating body, it is, it is dangerous potentially because of the, the risk of impact, right? Yeah. Collision. But even on a planetary surface where things settle to the ground, you're saying, yeah, there's still the problem if you've got like toxics or yeah. radioactive material yeah. or what have you, right? That yeah, and rocket fuel and nuclear stuff, they're not friendly things, no. right? <laughs> or like, by, you know, or like, okay, let's go say that, you know, if I leave waste in the woods on the earth, there, there are... You know, natural decomposition processes eventually largely, uh, take, you know, take things away in many cases. That's not going to be true on the surfaces of Mars and the moon, right? Right. So, so anything you leave there stays there. <laughs> yeah, so, it, I mean, we don't have a great track record on, on Earth of doing this. Like you say, we often let the natural environment take care of it, or we bury it in a hole, or we just leave it in a pile and let it be another politician's problem, right? But someone else in the future will deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. But so do you have hope then that we can sort of mend our ways and really develop good stewardship principles, you know, before we start venturing out in large numbers? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think this is why it's important to have these conversations, right? Is because if we have, I mean, I really think that the solution is to just not make the mess in the first place, right? And we actually have control over that, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, we do have control over that. And, you know, are there going to be treaties in place internationally that say the standard for working on the moon is this? Right, um, and that we all agree that we have one moon. Right, we don't have another right. moon. <laughs> right? right, we have one moon. Right, you know, can we not? You know, a thousand years from now, people are still going to be looking at our methods. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so like, if we, but I think these are hard decisions to make. You know, politically. Right, and mm -hmm. but only, by talking about them, we improve the chances of them happening. Yeah. yeah. An expense. So, how much does it cost? So, clever engineers can clever engineers think of ways to do this, you know? And resources are so hard to get on the moon, right? We don't, I mean, so I think so there are some factors yeah. driving us to not want to waste resources. For sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that sort of, um, that kind of closed cycle is important in a lot of different places in space exploration, just because, yeah, you're right. Like we, we don't have to conserve our air because we don't have extra air to, to use. And, and a lot of resources are like that. So I think that it, that encourages me because there's, you know, already this, you know, sort of underlying need in all of space exploration to be, you know, conservative and sustainable uh, in these ways. And, and, you know, the hope is that even when, you know, even when you don't need to conserve that leftover tank or something, we already have the processes in place to, to do it anyway. And, and so we kind of reduce that barrier. So that's my hope. <laughs> it, yeah, but it's, but it's a tough challenge. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was wondering if, uh, well, A, um, do you see your research um, directly informing this conversation in any particular way? And then I also want to ask you a question about colonialism. That's okay. my favorite last topic. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so my own research. So the way I mean, the, the, I think the first, the first way I think 
my research could influence this is that when we when we create, I mean, so creating a mess, how does that happen? It means when particles get away from us, right? When, when stuff gets away from us and where we have close control over it, right? Um, and so in space where there's low gravity, this is precisely the concern, right? Is that, you know, if, if gravity is not holding everything together, then things that you let go of, you know, drift off, right? And so looking at processes, and one of the things that we've seen under our low gravity experiments is that, you know, by changing, you know, how hard or how fast or how flexible the probe that you're putting into a material is, you definitely change the properties of the ejecta, the coming stuff coming mm -hmm. off the surface. Right. And so it could be possible during a design phase of some, you know, digging or anchoring or, you know, landing mission, right, to say we're going to set as a priority that we don't want to let, we want to have a minimum disturbance, right? And this would both benefit, you know, not making a mess, but also not having ejecta means not having dangerous projectiles coming around and blasting yeah. holes in people's spacesuits. Right. <laughs> and so again, I think it's, a, I think again, it's like the design can be a win-win if we understand the parameters under which it's more or less likely to happen that we make a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about, uh, you mentioned Phil Metzger's work uh, a couple of minutes ago, and I've also um, worked with him, uh, had many conversations. And, and the thing that I've taken away from his research, he said that when you land on the surface of the moon, which is covered with a very fine dust powder, really, of, of, of regolith, that gets blasted away uh, through the exhaust plume of your rocket yeah. at such high speed that some of those particles can even make it into orbit. Yeah, in which again, case, because, and it's because yeah. the escape velocity is so low. Right. <laughs> and for and then it becomes a perpetual be a problem. problem. Yeah. Right, right, because it doesn't yeah. ever settle. It, I mean, you think, oh, well, it blasts away, but it eventually settles. You still yeah. have some gravity. But if it's fast enough, you just create this orbital cloud. Right, which is then hazardous for the next visitor. Right. Right, right. right, And so I think, I mean, so maybe space by the nature of the low gravity will compel us to be better. <laughs> mm. yeah. That's the hopeful. Yeah, I like yeah, that. That's the hopeful view. But <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. Well, let me uh, ask, and Eric, unless you would like to. Uh, no, no, go ahead. You, you've queued it up. So, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, concern that our our past behavior, you know, mostly from Western countries, right, going out into so-called untamed lands and claiming <laughs> it for ourselves. And, oh, by the way, there's some people there, but they don't really count. Yeah. Well, we now recognize that they did count and we're getting, you know, feeling quite remorseful for having taken their land. But it's kind of the situation we're in, right? Can we do better going forward? People are concerned that going out in a space is sort of another form of colonialism. Do you have yeah. some perspective on this you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is such an important question to be asking. And you know, increasingly, people who are interested in physics and space are are doing a much better job of asking this question. Right? It doesn't mean we have answers, right? But but asking it is a start. And you know, my thinking on this has, you know. Uh, one of my favorite people thinking about the nature of colonialism and science is Chandra Prescott Wenson. And, you know, there's not a good track record. Humans have a terrible track record on this, right? And sort of the nature of exploration and colonialism is to exploit the new thing to benefit the old thing, right? And there's like this false hierarchy that gets 
you know, that gets imprinted and then is passed on and on and on, right? And, you know, we destroy lives and cultures and ecosystems in the process, right? And then competition over resources leads to violence, right? And so this just, I mean, this sounds terrible, right? <laughs> like, we don't need this. Um, and so, I mean, I think the important thing here is that, you know, you turn to experts in physics, you know, for material properties. You turn, you know, to experts in engineering for design of exhaust systems, right? And you turn to social scientists, you know, for expertise in how to do exploration in a way that's ethical and avoids these known pitfalls, right? And, you know, scientists and engineers are not those experts, right? And they're the ones, if we're the ones in charge of planning space exploration, it's likely that we will fall into mistakes that have been made before. Right. Um, we're, and the, the problem is that we're just fascinated by space. Like, that's why we're doing this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we're so overly driven by that fascination, right, that it's tempting to make ethical concerns secondary, right? Um, and I don't know that, you know, we are necessarily the most trustworthy, right? And, you know, turning to people who have that expertise um, is probably a smart thing for us to do. I do think we can avoid it. Right. Um, and you know, I, because we sort of queued this up and talked about this beforehand, like I was trying to think of an example of like how you separate exploration from colonialism. Right. Um, and there are two different words. Right. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. who gets to explore? Right. Who right. benefits from the exploration? Right. Um, what's lost in the process of explanation and are the costs worth it? Right. And, you know, if what's we lost in terms of like losing the pristine state of the uh, right, so it could be the pristine the, state, but we'd also could lose access to a resource that we badly need, right? Yeah. Or we lose access to innovation that would have happened, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, like the costs and the benefits, you know, mm -hmm. I think you know there need to be considered really. And again, who benefits, right? Right. Right is not equally, you know, is definitely not equally shared, right? Um, and if we chose not to go now, let's say like so, the, so the alternative say we're going to choose not to go now, right? Um, that preserve it for the next generation, right? You know, kick the can down the road. You know, are they going to do better than we did, right? Um, and so I was trying to think of some way that, like, a resource extraction, right, which is really what colonial enterprises are about, as opposed to just, yeah. right? You know, is there a difference when we go to an asteroid to do that, right? You know, and if we're talking about asteroid mining, we're talking about resource extraction, right? Versus, say, when we go into mines in Bolivia to extract lithium, right? And, like, how are those the same or different, right? And, you know, we're going into Bolivia. You know, there's people who live there, right? We're risking destroying an ecosystem, the residents' lives, right? You know, there's both, you know, environmental and economic and exploitation going on, a whole bunch of things, right? And we do this because we want the latest, you know, cell phone and electric car, right? Because we want the battery material. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the asteroid, maybe we actually stand a chance of avoiding that because there aren't people there. Right. Yeah. You know, and I feel really differently about destroying an asteroid than destroying people and a community. Right. Those are, yeah. those are not there's not a moral equivalence there. Um, right. <laughs> they're really quite different. And so I would ask the question, are there ways in which and I don't know the answer to this. Right? Are there ways in which we could do resource extraction? You know, from things like asteroids that, that have fewer human, fewer negative human consequences, and I don't know if that's true. And I think it's worth asking the question. Um, but you know, when I say this. You know, I have I just bought a brand new cell phone, and I have actually a very old hybrid car that I don't want to replace. Like, you know, how we use our resources, you know, matters. 
and I and I want to have access to nice lithium batteries, right? That's yeah, and style. <laughs> most of the world wants to have a better most quality. Of the world wants life. access to nice lithium batteries. And that Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the bene the environmental benefits of lithium batteries means that it enables a solar and wind-based economy, you know, much more so than, right. you know, conventional. Absolutely. So there are some big environmental upsides, but uh, no, I mean, you, you ask a really huge, hugely important question and uh, you're right that you're not displacing native cultures on an asteroid because there aren't any that we know of. Right. Uh, but uh, in, I'm talking about in terms of bacterial life, possibly, okay. um, but it's not the same. Um, but you're still talking about the economic imbalances that might come yeah. from its exploitation and use, right? And that right. also has to be thought through. And, um, and I do think, and you know, and you do destroy an asteroid that was there before and is there no longer, right? And that, right. that, that is not zero cost, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Yeah. But it's a different cost yeah. than a human cost, right? And if, I was going to make the point. With the asteroid image that I put up, I'll put it back. Psyche 16 um, is a which very is a large rocky asteroid, right? With a lot of metal, as I understand it, yeah. too, right? So, mm -hmm. so there aren't very many like this one, and at the same time, there's a awful lot of material in one place, and so it's convenient. But you know, it's not a unique object in the whole solar system exactly. Uh, it might be the best one. Uh, but I guess the point is with asteroids, we we usually have choices of several, and maybe we don't have to consume them all, but just a portion of them. Would, yeah, would and, and these, and I think these small rubble pile ones, which which now you know sort of seem to be a dime a dozen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It seems like you know you know that they are an increasing source of fascination for precisely this reason. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and again, so this and that, that comes with this whole host of questions, right, of, you know, who benefits, you know, who benefits from that? And can we make mm -hmm. sure that we don't reproduce some of the really horrible things that have gone on, you know, in the past? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we should be able to do it because we're smart people who know how to ask questions. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we have, but it takes politics and it takes engineering. Yeah. It, takes, it like takes so many it takes effort, it takes yeah. so many different expertises to pull this off well. Right. Right. And I'd also add it takes it takes perspectives that maybe aren't usually uh, at the table, right? But, yeah. If it's a largely Western centered, right. you know, discussion, you're you're missing a whole lot of uh, perspectives that might matter. Yeah. And then I think we can always, you know, exactly like if we mess up the face of the moon. People are going to know and be upset. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that has yeah. such cultural significance. Right. And, you know, you know, there are, and so we have to be saying when we destroy things, who does that affect? Right. Because mm -hmm. I think we'll all be upset if the moon were suddenly not there. Or yeah. Know. Right. And, you know, and destroying yeah. asteroids is a smaller version of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah I could imagine, yeah. yes, you know, like we have world heritage sites, right? I can imagine yeah. some planetary bodies becoming protected areas like, you know, the, the lights out of the moon, right? That everybody on the planet, you know, looks up at every night. You know, that might be, you know, we might get to a place where that's off limits, right? Where, you know, a smaller asteroid that, you know, isn't visible without, you know, expensive equipment from, from the planet might be more, you know, up for grabs as it were. 
to like there's a yeah. you know potentially a balance and a mix of solutions in a way. I was gonna you say know, there's always a compromise that has to take place, but if it's done in a way that is equitable, you know, and and also maybe err on the side of caution, maybe you know only a small portion of whatever's available gets marked for uh, resource extraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, like I mean, these are questions we've never really asked before. Like, is it better to use up all of one asteroid or take a little bit off of ten of them? Mm. Like, mm. like those are questions that humans have asked. <laughs> yeah, the better to mine one mountain completely or ten mine mountains right. a little bit. Well, we know the answer on Earth. Probably you know better, Earth, but the questions are different in space. Yeah, yeah. right. Right, they are different in space, and I don't know which is a better <laughs> answer. Mm -hmm. I don't. I, mean, I didn't even occur to me to ask that question until thirty seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> let, let yeah. alone have you know an answer to it. But um, you know, there, and also we don't have it. We're only beginning to understand the diversity of asteroids. Right, mm -hmm. you know, the psyche is metal rich. Mm -hmm. Right, there's a lot of them that are metal rich. Right. You know, are you know one of the things that's been thought about um, with asteroids is that because they cooled so very very slowly um, during the formation of the solar system, that they have, may have really really interesting crystalline structures, right? Mm -hmm. To some of the materials inside them, things that we don't have on Earth, right? So we yeah. may actually discover that there is a rare and wonderful form, you know, some metallic alloy that you can only get from asteroids, mm -hmm. and you don't have the patience to grow it on Earth, right? Right. Yeah. And now yeah. you've set up an ethical conundrum because if it's only a little bit, but it's somehow really valuable to humans, then so you better believe there's going to be a next, like a major resource extraction, unethical yeah. situation going on, right? Yeah. <laughs> like those are precisely the conditions under which you know colonialism rears its ugliest head, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so when you you entangle when you when you when the economics are entangled with the exploration, right? And you know most, you know, and you know most history of human exploration, those issues are entangled. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, we especially can pretend, we can pretend we're being pure in our hearts about exploration, right? But. Um, but a lot of exploration is funded by those economic drivers, exactly. right? Otherwise, it's too expensive and too dangerous to manage, right? And so I don't think you can ever disentangle them completely. Right, 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 right. And yet humans will, I mean, we're, we want to explore, like, you know, this is, this is, you know, we have never, as, yeah. you know, this is always something sure that people have been, you know, driven to peek around the corner, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Which is what, we, which is why we're here today, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's what, this is what our human curiosity, you know, is, is so attractive. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, right. I couldn't tell if you had a, a question there. We're getting up to the hour. Um, no, no, I, I'm good. I was just seeing if there was any uh, comments we'd like to read from the listeners. Uh, anything that strikes you? We had we had some good comments. I think the the question uh, came up about how accurate are the distance calculations for asteroids? Like, how do how well do we know the position of an asteroid uh, in the solar system? So, so I, I'll, I mean, unless one of you guys want to talk about that, this is funny because this is actually my earliest experience with asteroids was as a bachelor student working on a project where we were tracking near-Earth asteroids to understand exactly mm -hmm. what, the what the coordinates were of its orbit. Yeah. Right. And in fact, we track these very, very carefully. There's a whole minor planet catalog, it's called, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. which has very, very accurate 
<laughs> and precise both um, recordings of what those are going to be. Um, and this has been done for quite some time, both for scientific purposes, because you want to know the population, um, and for hazard estimation of how, you know, when can we be, when should we be afraid that we're going to get hit by one? So this is, this is, there's lots and lots of work on doing a very good job on that. Excellent. Gotcha. So that once we find this magic crystal uh, structure, yeah, we actually do know where to go. We know, we know where to go. <laughs> what we don't always know with the asteroids is we often just know their location, you know, as a bright mm -hmm. dot going across our yeah. sky. Yeah. Um, our understanding of what's actually that, you know, how many of them are rocky versus rebel pile, mm -hmm. that's really much, much newer. And yeah. that's rapidly developing is, you know, and I know, I know, I know less about this. Yeah, that's, I actually worked with Dr. Martin Elvis on that a, a oh, few years ago. He, yeah. He's written some interesting papers on how knowing what type of asteroid it is really changes the economics of asteroid mining and, and resource extraction, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants a bunch of gravel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, position, you know, it sounds like we've got, I mean, I, I guess, it, you know, we must, someone in the comments pointed out that, you know, we've got to have at least a very highly accurate, uh, you know, understanding of at least a couple, considering how the DART mission, you know, was successful just a, a few weeks ago. So, yeah. and we detected that we actually, we actually know precisely how much we nudged it off its course now. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And so, so the, so, the, and yeah, these, those calculations will continue to come out and be better and better, right? As, as they get, you know, all of the calculations done. But yeah, we successfully budged it. It's not on the same course it was on before. And we know it's a new course now. Excellent. Yeah. Go humanity. Go team. <laughs> It's, it's uh, interesting wonderful. to think about that. Yeah, intentionally changing the orbit of a, of a planetary body is kind of. Yeah, I mean, think that's amazing. You're going to be doing a lot more of that, honestly. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. in small ways, anyway. Yeah, in small ways. To, to, and, and that was done in a way that was carefully controlled. Yep. Right, that it's not going to cause any, you know, future collision with the Earth as a result of it. Right. And just, right. just a little bit. But, you know, the pictures that are coming back, you can see that when it was hit, right, that there was like ejecta from it. Right. So mm -hmm. we have made a mess there. We've made a mess there because yeah. we wanted to know. Answer to that right, question, right, right, and so I mean, that was sort of a purposeful mess. Right, right, and it's a it's a good you know good thing to know what kind of a mess you're going to make in the future yeah. if you do this again. You know, it's it's yeah. it, I don't know, very interesting. Uh, so really quick then before we wrap up, uh, is there anything we missed? Anything we should have asked you, or or that you want to tell our listeners about? No, I think that, I mean, thanks. You guys did a great job. I think you, we, we talked about some good questions to ask and we added some more along the way. I think we got through most of the things um, that, you know, that I, I was hoping to share with your listeners about a slightly different perspective. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you to everyone who joined us live to uh, submit questions and, uh, and everybody who's listening. We really appreciate it. And of course, Karen, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and your insights with us. Uh, if you're listening and you have any suggestions for future discussion topics, people you'd like us to interview, um, or just want to uh, reach out and be part of the conversation, please let us know. You can email us at ourfutureinspace at orbitalassembly.com. You can find us on Twitter at ourfutureinspace and Facebook at ourfutureinspace. And if you like what we're doing at Orbital Assembly and would like to learn about ways you might be able to help us in other um, methods, uh, ways, um, means, uh, please feel free, reach out, send us an email to info at orbitalassembly.com. Thanks everyone for listening. And thanks once again, Professor Daniels for your time and your, your insight. All right. Thank be well, you. everybody.
Until next time. Bye-bye. This program represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Above Space, nor the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The mere appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Above Space, nor its affiliates. Thank you.